Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. War changes everything. The economy, the landscape, the people in and around it. War is a stampede of wild elephants, leaving nothing but rubble in their wake. The costs are unfathomable. Some countries never recover, while others take years to get back even a piece of what they lost. And the soldiers who fight often lose a piece of themselves as well. But then there are the wars that don't change much. It's true, it does happen. In 1859, for example, a British-owned black boar was shot by an American farmer on an island off the coast of Washington state. The dispute that ensued resulted in a war lasting a matter of weeks between the United States and Great Britain. Eventually, a deal was worked out and the conflict, known today as the Pig War, ended without a single lost life. Well, except the boars, that is. The Napoleonic Wars, however, changed a whole lot. Millions were killed over a span of 12 years as Napoleon worked his way across Europe. The United Kingdom, Austria, Sweden, and other countries worked to fight off the invading French Empire, eventually defeating Napoleon in 1815 at Waterloo. Spain was also heavily involved in the conflict. Its leaders had lost control of the country around 1808, and for six years they fought alongside the British and were finally able to push the French forces out by 1814. But one town had been ready to get its hands dirty from day one. The small town of Huescar, in the province of Granada, didn't have much. They didn't even have an army, only about eight guards to protect the town. But they wanted to help Spain put Ferdinand VII back on the throne. So in 1809, they declared war on Napoleon and his allies, specifically Denmark. Napoleon eventually lost, no thanks to Huescar, and his brother, the acting king, was banished from the Spanish throne. Spain and Denmark went on to sign the Treaty of Paris in 1814, which established France's borders and gave other countries their land back, thus ending Spain's fraught battle with the emperor. Huescar, however, never backed down. Even though Spain had found peace with France, the people of the small Spanish town remained at war with the Danes for years, 172, in fact, and yet no shots were fired, and neither side suffered a single casualty. So how could an entire country, and a small Spanish town, be at war with each other for that long without anyone dying or hearing about it? For that, we can thank Vicente González. Vicente was an official from Huescar who found the original declaration, in 1981. As it turned out, after the treaty had been signed, the town simply forgot about the war. For 172 years, the two sides were engaged in a conflict neither was aware of. Once the declaration was discovered and made public, a Danish ambassador traveled to the small town on Armistice Day in 1981 and signed a treaty, officially bringing an end to their war. Gifts were exchanged, with the mayor of Wescar receiving a photo of the Danish queen as well as books by the famous Danish children's author Hans Christian Andersen. In return, Wescar renamed one of its streets, Calle Dinamarca, or Denmark Street. Townspeople got the day off from work to celebrate and drink free wine while thousands of tourists flooded into town. Word has it, a bus full of Scandinavian women even showed up dressed as Vikings. 
Two years later, the village of Lihar, about 70 miles away from Westcar, also declared peace with France, and it only took them 100 years. The king of Lihar had been offended during a visit to Paris in 1883 and retaliated with a formal declaration of war. But neither side made a move, and so the declaration, just like Westcar's, was lost to time. We're often reminded after major conflicts to never forget, so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Unfortunately for Westcar and Lihar, somebody did forget, and the conflict almost never stopped. Imagine going to work, and while shuffling papers and updating spreadsheets, you uncover a conspiracy, or a scandal, or some earth-shattering information that sheds light on the customs and capabilities of past cultures. And when I say earth-shattering, I mean it literally. In 1902, construction workers had been building cisterns for an upcoming housing development when they accidentally stumbled upon a piece of history. It had remained hidden beneath the island of Malta, undisturbed, They originally tried to hide their discovery, but doing so proved futile. The Mediterranean site was too big to conceal, and eventually one Father Emmanuel Magri took on the task of digging a little deeper to see what exactly the workers had found. Magri began excavating in November of 1903, and worked for four years, slowly peeling back the layers of a place that had not been seen for over 6,000 years. Bodies, hundreds of them, were hauled out along with other artifacts and tossed away. Because workers had no idea of the importance of the location, nor did they inventory anything that they found. Sadly, Father Magri had to stop the excavation to attend to some missionary work in Tunisia where he ultimately died, but his excavation had not been forgotten. The dig was restarted a few years later by a Maltese archaeologist named Sir Themistocles Zamet, who did his best to pick up where Magri left off. If only Magri had taken better notes. He'd left behind a mess, lacking any kind of catalog of what had been discovered. Zamet worked hard to continue the dig while also keeping detailed records for both himself and future historians who came after him. Excavation was completed in 1911, though visitors had been allowed inside during the process. Today it's called the Hal Safliani Hypogeum, and it's home to pottery, jewelry, carvings, and almost 7,000 bodies dating back to about 2500 BC. It's a necropolis, part crypt, part cemetery, designed for large cities of the time. The hypogeum itself consists of three levels, each bearing numerous chambers carved out of limestone. Holes were cut in the ceilings to allow light in as low as the middle level, and certain openings were designed for sunlight to pour in at specific times of the year, like the winter solstice. The chambers themselves had also been styled after the temples on the surface. Builders had included stone features on the ceilings, as well as spiral designs painted in red ochre. Since many of the temples above ground have degraded over time and lost their roofs, the preservation of the hypogeum has given historians a greater glimpse into the architectural prowess of the ancient Maltese. One room, known as the Oracle Room, is small and rectangular, and yet when someone speaks inside it, The acoustics amplify the sound so it can be heard throughout much of the level. The hypogeum also helps researchers understand how the island's ancestors handled death. 
It's believed that the burial process occurred in stages. Bodies were left out to decay until they were nothing more than bones. Those bones, along with their belongings, were then stacked with other remains and painted with red ochre to symbolize the blood and life that once ran through their veins. Unfortunately, the hypogeum's preservation is the exact thing that's killing it. The presence of visitors to the site has altered carbon dioxide levels, temperature, and humidity, as well as introduced microorganisms that are slowly devouring the temple from the inside out. Measures have been taken to restrict access to only 80 tourists per day, and designated pathways have been installed so that wandering feet don't trample the hypogeum's history out of existence. It's not certain how long the structure will last given its exposure to the rest of the world, but there's no telling what other secrets Malta has living just beneath the surface. There could be another crypt, or a secret city, or a vast treasure waiting to be found. All it would take is a shovel, and a bit of luck, of that I'm certain. Make no bones about it. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.